Welcome to Feminist Coffee Hour. You can find us online at Fem Coffee Pod on Twitter. You can go to our website, www.feministcoffeehour.com, or you can send us an email to feministcoffeehour at gmail.com. I'm Elizabeth. And I'm Karen. And today our guest is Julica Herman de la Fuente. She serves as the Director of Anti-Racism and Anti-Oppression Ministries at the First Universalist Church of Minneapolis and is currently completing her path toward ordination. Born and raised in Mexico City, she first became committed to social justice when she came to the United States for college. Since then, Julica has been an anti-racism, anti-oppression educator and trainer in a variety of capacities over the past two decades. In addition to a lay community ministry degree from Eville Lombard, Julica also holds an MSW from the University of Michigan and is certified as a master life coach. When not on shift with the resistance, you will find Julica playing with fabric, making costumes for her two daughters, Aunt Alania and Sophia, looking for more excuses to frost fancy cakes, and reading optimistic sci-fi and fantasy possibilities of a just and equitable universe. Welcome to Feminist Coffee Hour, Julica. Thank you. I'm so happy to be here. We're happy to have you. I first met you when you came to my congregation to do a talk about white supremacy culture. And I learned a lot from your workshop. And I also learned a lot from the way that people reacted and the questions that people asked. It got me thinking a lot about the ways that people think and talk about whiteness. And on this podcast, we definitely talk about racism and the way that plays out in the real world. And we've also been thinking a lot about whiteness and how does that interact with white supremacy. I guess to start with, what do people mean when they talk about whiteness? Does it just mean people with light skin, like white people? Well, I think that's part of the problem, right? Whiteness is a created category. It's not something that existed before 1619 when, when the colonists wanted to find a way to organize and keep their slaves in place. So as they created blackness, they created whiteness. And so you know, the way that I talk about it is race is a construct, but racism is real. Whiteness is the category that people aspire to join in order to have more privilege. Over the course of the past couple hundred years, different ethnic groups have lobbied and tried to become quote unquote white. So that's, you know, an informal definition, I guess. Yeah, I think that's really interesting to kind of make the distinction between whiteness, the idea. And I think sometimes when we talk about that, people just think you mean white people and it's, it's not really the same thing. I think it's really uh, important right now when we're in, um, we're in Black History Month and <laughs> why are we talking about whiteness? And I think the answer is that the ideas that we have around whiteness are foundational to white supremacy and white supremacy culture. And that's what can contribute to that harm. That's right. That's right. And I think um, without challenging the categories, without challenging, like, how did we get here? We're going to continue to support the status quo. So part of our work is to be critical about like, so what does this mean? And how did we get here? And, and what is what is this definition? And also, what is the lived experience? Right. So, for example, myself, as a Mexican immigrant, I am white presenting. I look very fair. And if you know what you're looking at, I look Mexican because of my bone structure, because of my body structure, because of my hair, because of a bunch of different things. But if you look at the tone of my skin, my skin is not brown. My skin is pink. So there's also whiteness as experienced by some people of color in, in this country that is not the same 
as the privilege that gets passed down from people who have primarily European heritage, right? Primarily Nordic European her heritage in particular. Yes, definitely. That's that's something that I've been thinking about. And, you know, uh, my, my father is Colombian and my mom is Irish and Jewish. And, you know, in general, most places I go in the United States, people just look at me and they see a white woman. And just been thinking about, like, how those ideas of who is and isn't white, like change in times and places really got me thinking. During your talk, a woman was saying, and she was like, but I can't be white because I'm Jewish, you know? And, and I was thinking about that. And the, the thing that popped into my head was whiteness is conditional and insidious. And then I was like, oh, that's an idea, you know? And I, like, I, I started writing about that and I started thinking about that a lot, about how these ideas change and how they vary. And that's, I think, also what can make them so harmful, you know, and in that, you know, sometimes you see people who, um, like what you're saying, like different groups are like lobbying to be white. Yep. Some people that are uh, kind of on the margins or whatever, see that if they had whiteness, if they were considered white, they would have an advantage and that creates an advantage for extremely harmful and, and evil behavior. Yeah, that's right. Fascinating to me sometimes to think about the, the insidiousness of, of whiteness in terms of how it's been made invisible to people who are white. So for, for somebody who your experience, Elizabeth, really brings to mind the idea that, you know, white people in Judaism are conditional, but generally Jewish people in the United States check off white on their race box from the government, you know? <laughs> and so even though, like, I doubt that that person checks other on their census or any other forms they have to fill out if they're at the doctor, in this context, they are disavowing their whiteness. They're rendering their whiteness invisible. And so I think it's really fascinating contextually that some people kind of get to be white when it does help and not be white when it doesn't help. But I'm not saying that that's a, I want to be really mindful to avoid like sneaky Jew anti-Semitism here <laughs> uh, in that, because I don't think that it's a sneaky thing. I think it's a way to cope with oppression, which is perfectly rational to me. But I do think that it is an option for some people to, to toggle back and forth between I am white and I'm, I'm not white, whereas other people don't have even that option. Yeah, that's right. I find myself having certain opportunities that some of my colleagues who have darker skin don't have. So for example, when I do anti-racism work, I think that I can deliver certain messages and interact with white people in certain ways that other colleagues of color can't. Um, and, I, and I attribute that to implicit bias. So when we see someone that is white presenting, because we have been trained to think that whiteness is better, we are more at ease. That's even the case sometimes for people of color who have assimilated and who have trained themselves to try to prioritize whiteness. So part of our internal liberation work is also about reprogramming ourselves and really truly believing that black and brown is beautiful right and that that we get to look different ways and show up in different ways and manifest our cultures in different ways but implicit bias is real and it's something that's unconscious so if you are already biased in in your 
approach to someone, then how they look and whether they present as white gives me a different entry point to certain conversations about racism that other that other folks who don't present as white don't have. And then conversely, I would say I also get to hear a lot of nonsense because I have the fly in the wall experience of white people thinking that they're in an all white space and saying things that I don't think they would say if they knew I'm a Mexican immigrant. Um, so yeah, I can tell you some more stories about living in a small conservative town here in Michigan and what that's like as a white presenting immigrant, if you want to hear them, but it's intense. Yeah, you can share that. And I was just thinking when you said that, I was wondering if you meant that both like people are more comfortable than you, with you, but also they feel less threatened by you. Yep, that's right. I'll share one story. Um, the past four years, ever since Trump was elected and during his presidency, really changed how I experience my ethnicity and my experience here in the United States. Because and I've been here since 1990. But it wasn't until there was permission to be much more racist out loud and to speak especially against immigrants and against Mexicans in particular, that I started realizing that I was less safe than I knew that if some of the people who live here in my conservative little Michigan community knew that I was Mexican, I wonder how they would treat me. I wonder what they would do. So I remember, for example, the holiday season right after Trump was elected in 2016, there's this tradition of having a holiday parade and they call it the winter holiday parade, but really it's a Christian Christmas parade. And the reason we know that is because every other float is a nativity scene, which is fine. We should just call it what it is. But anyway, they also decorate a lot of trucks and things with lights. And so it's like a light parade and it's super cute. And the downtown area is blocked and like you can't go anywhere during that hour because that's like kind of the only street in town almost. And one of the tow trucks that was decorated with a bunch of lights had a Confederate flag license plate. And I just had this really intense and strange experience connecting that actually maybe it was no actually it wasn't 2016 it was 2017 and the reason it was then is because charlottesville had already happened right and the riots in, in charlottesville and i had this like mental connection of when they're angry they do things like they do in charlottesville and when they're happy they have little light parades but it's the same thing like there's just this like celebration of us and who we are. And it, I just had this very strong sense that if I wasn't a white Christian, they would tolerate me as long as they didn't know that I was there. Like there was just this like sense of keep your head down and you'll be okay. And it was horrible. I mean, I felt like I was going to throw up. I was like, I don't know if I can live here. Like it's just intense to feel like if they really knew who I am and what I stand for, they would try to find a way to quote unquote, send me home, send me back. That was a very powerful experience that has taught me a lot more and has also, uh, I don't know, helped me understand what it is like to live in a brown skin body where you are afraid all the time. And I realized before Trump, I wasn't afraid all the time. So that was a powerful learning experience. 
Thank you for sharing that with us. Reminds sure. me of, of something a relative of mine said. He's a, a Jewish Republican, but he said, you liberals are right about one thing, which is happy holidays. Because since Trump, people have been wishing me a Merry Christmas, and I know they mean it in an anti-Semitic way. And I was like, yep, mm -hmm. 100%. Mm -hmm. So what's not connecting for him? <laughs> <laughs> not sure. I think he thinks that like only a small percent of Republicans are, are anti-Semitic but they're loud. Like, that's what he would say. I don't want to like do a tangent, but I'm pretty sure that's what he would, he would say. I think that <laughs> Karen Rowling right, right. Well, you know, and I'm also, I want to be mindful that there, there is also leftist anti-Semitism, just yes. like there's leftist racism, oh, yeah. mm -hmm. uh, anti-black racism, uh, anti-immigrant sentiment. So now I'm not going to bite my tongue on that. I mean, the complexities of it are, are, you know, it's not just that there are, bad folks on both sides that one party seeks to implement systems of power and deportation and wreckage upon families as a codified law of this country and the other does not as often. <laughs> yeah, I was just so, going to bring up the capital riots. It's just kind of a display of, of whiteness and white supremacy before the whole world that everyone saw and that people are trying to downplay, you know? And, you know, we're recording this February 7th and uh, this morning, Chris Hayes tweeted out something like, if the rioters had actually managed to hang Mike Pence, do you think we would have enough votes to convict the president, uh, President Trump? I don't think so. And <laughs> I'm not sure if we would either. And I think that, that there's been more outrage from the Democrats about that than they were after a Republican vice president, you know, and it's, it's not shocking to me, but it's disturbing. And I think that, um, like, as you said, Karen, we're, we're, we're seeing, you know, the racism and that, that misogyny on the left in, in terms to the reaction to AOC talking about what happened to her and people yeah. who are not, not believing her, not what, not, not believing what happened to her. And that's just a denial of, of the, the racism, the racially, motivated nature of the attack and how serious it was and what the threat was to so many people's life in, uh, on that day. Yeah, and I think that that really does speak to the quality of whiteness more than it does like the target of racism in some ways from the Capitol riot. I think people think of racism as, you know, just shouting the N-word or outright supporting slavery. However, where we see like whiteness take center stage in racism, I think, fits really nicely in the display of whiteness with the capital riots and that people were, you know, the, the startlingly few deaths of protesters, even as uh, officers were killed, really, I think, showed people who may not have been conversant in the concept of whiteness and the role that it plays I think that some people, at least, that I, I hadn't heard before talking about whiteness started talking about, oh, I see whiteness now, <laughs> you know? <laughs> uh, and that white supremacy is, is about protecting whiteness as much as it is oppressing non-whiteness. And I've heard a lot of people talk about comparing the response uh, to the, the Capitol riots with uh, the response to Black Lives Matter and how that is and isn't parallels. But I think that that was 
a salient comparison for many people, even though it's just it's a little bit off the mark, is evidence to what you say, Karen, that, that people are starting to see things. It had to be that blatant, but maybe people are starting to notice. Do you all know the story about Henry Ford's Americanization school? No. Can you tell us? Yeah, I think, I think this is a this is a really good um, example of how whiteness occurs or gets created. So at the turn of the last century, at the beginning of industrialization, there were a lot of uh, European immigrants coming to the United States and looking to find a better life for themselves and their families. And Henry Ford and other industrialists were creating the, um, what do you call it, the assembly line? and factories and ways of making things move faster. So it was very important that people be able to communicate with each other. And there were people from all different European countries speaking different European languages and not speaking English. So he had a English school where his workers were expected to go learn the same language so that they could communicate and be more efficient on the assembly line. But not only did they learn how to speak English, they learned what to eat, what to wear, and how to become an American. Henry Ford, who was famously anti-Semitic and racist, um, had his own private police that would come and check up on his workers at their homes to make sure that they were eating the right foods, wearing the right clothes, speaking the right language. And it was very important for Henry Ford to create this American man, this American persona that was actually whiteness and taking away most of the ethnic and cultural traditions that these European people brought. So the reason that, that sometimes white people struggle with finding their ethnicity or their culture is because their culture is the absence of culture. It has actually been created on purpose to take away the elements that identify you as Polish or French or German or all these other different um, specific ethnic identities from Europe. So the American school had a graduation ceremony where they had this enormous cauldron, like huge, like the size of a room. And at the end of the ceremony, after everyone um, had been congratulated or whatever, the, each person who had graduated would walk into the, like would go up steps and go into the cauldron, into this like really big, quote unquote, melting pot. And they would change from their traditional clothing of their people into a little suit with a hat and they would come out the other side waving an American flag. It was like the actual embodiment of assimilation. It was the embodiment of how we create whiteness. If you Google Henry Ford's English School or Americanization School, there are articles and pictures of a bunch of white men from all these different European countries standing in and around this enormous cauldron. And it says, you know, a pluribus unum of the of the many one. Like it's it's the whole plan to create a new category of people, and it just blows my mind. And I I also want to say that it's important for us as we look back at that history, and at least some of us I think feel quite appalled that that happened. To try to imagine to be those people. And how maybe that graduation ceremony was like a pinnacle 
a moment of, I made it. I'm going to be okay. My family's going to be okay. Like for them, it wasn't a terrible thing. For them, it was a real wonderful celebration. And so I wonder, what are we doing today that a hundred years from now, people are going to look back and they're going to say, we, they were what? They did what? In schools, they taught them what? Like, you know, in the same way so that, so that we have the same sort of critical awareness of ourselves. But I think it's a fascinating story. And when I first learned it, I was like, you are kidding me. Like they actually did this on purpose. Wow. I want to get a little bit more granular. So when you say that they thought this was a good thing, who thought this was a good thing? Because I wonder if the attendees of this school, would they even be able to express if they felt loss in this process? Probably not. I mean, I don't know. I'm just trying to imagine, like, what was it like for the people there? Was it happy? Was it was it loss? Was it complicated? Was it relief? Who knows? You know, I, I had my citizenship ceremony a couple of years ago, and I had a really difficult time at that ceremony and tried not to cry for most of it. I was not happy to be there. I did not want to become an American, but I did it because I did not feel safe continuing to have a green card here because I didn't think that my rights were going to be upheld under the Trump administration. So I know that I wasn't happy, but that I was in a room full of people that were really happy. I could see how happy they were. So I was the odd one out. Like I was the one that that wasn't glad for this for this shift. It also it's also true that my immigration interviews and process happened the same summer that they started separating children from their families at the border. So it was incredibly painful for me. I felt so complicit uh, by being the quote unquote good immigrant, the one that they would accept, the one that is like you know, graduate degree, really well assimilated, the one that's welcome. And meanwhile, there are people who are fleeing actual violence and poverty and hunger, and they're not, they're not welcome. What the hell? So I don't know how they were feeling, Karen. I don't know. I mean, I, I, I just want to complicate it because I think sometimes our stories can just be one, one narrative when in fact there's many different ones. Absolutely. I agree. And thank you so much for sharing that. I feel like, you know, I, I have a number of friends who became citizens under the Trump administration who had felt that it hadn't been necessary until then. And it's really been an interesting experience for me to hear the variety of experiences as somebody who has birth citizenship here. And to think back to my family's immigration stories. And, you know, I'm Holocaust diaspora descended mm -hmm. and some just regular migration, mm -hmm. immigration descended, depending on which side you uh, and how far back you go. Mm -hmm. And just kind of reflecting on the ways that what we did talk about and what we didn't talk about, about our immigration stories and even in our own family um, and where we wanted to be white and where we didn't. It's complicated, you know? And, and so being able to kind of witness these parallel stories go on 
for friends of mine, parallels to what my family had gone through in previous generations. And just kind of to see the historical perspective of the way history ends up repeating itself and reflecting on like, what are the lessons that we learned from this? You know, where do we move forward in this space where we've become aware of whiteness in the same ways that we've become hyper aware of how blackness functions in America, you know, or the ways that we've become aware of how immigration functions in America or immigration status. Now we're becoming more aware of whiteness and is that gonna help change the trajectory at all or not? That's my big question here, you know? I hope so. I am an educator at heart and I do believe that when we learn more things that we don't know that we don't know, we can expand our consciousness and expand our commitment, but we have to be willing to be curious and humble and know that we don't know that we don't know it. Like, as long as we're trying to pretend that we are all set, that we have all the information, that our view of the world is the view of the world, that's, that's I think, where we're in trouble. I think one of the things that you said in the seminar that you gave that I went to was about how this is like a long process and it's a lifelong process and it's not going to and white supremacy is not going to be ended in our lifetimes. And we got to know that it's a long road. And at the same time, that was hard to hear, but it was also, you know, necessary. And I think it's almost changed my approach and made me more curious about these things. Mm-hmm. I joined a book group that's, that's doing the book, uh, me and white supremacy, mm-hmm. Riley Lassad. It's like supposed to be a 28 day thing. And we're doing it like 28 weeks things We're we're almost done gone on for for a while and I think that you know having a good group of people that are willing to challenge each other and willing to ask questions and willing to be wrong is is a way to learn about whiteness in a in a way that's not you know there's there's been a lot of discussion about like corporate anti-racism trainings and like why is that bad like you have to go deeper than that like Mm -hmm. for some people that's like that's a good that's just the beginning that's just like the first step you know so I think that's that's important context to know. I'm just glad that we're having this conversation because it's it's a big one and it's a long one. And it's um, our last episode we were talking about, like, I was talking with another friend of mine about, like, parenting and how do you answer your kids' questions about racism and about the pandemic and about all the stuff that's, that's going on. And we're talking about different resources. And it's interesting to see the questions that 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 kids have about this stuff and that as they're beginning to learn it and and, and figure it out and is that the sankofa looking forward to look back you look back at your past and you think like how did my grandparents or like farther back think about becoming american and like how is how is my kid experiencing the whole like system of america right now it's kind of like you're looking in different directions to see what's what's going on in the present. It's an interesting non-linear way of looking at things, That's right. which I think is important. Like, you know, the idea of like only linear thinking as being like a white way of thinking. And like, that's a new connection for me. Cause at first I was like, what are you saying? You can't have empiricism at all. No, that's not, that's not what you're saying. Right. That's, it's just like looking at things from different perspectives to kind of learn and understand more. Yes, indeed. So one of the kind of critiques that I see of this kind of manner of interrogating whiteness is kind of around the 
I'm going to use like a, a leftist buzzword here, but like this neoliberalism of it all, this focus on, well, I'm going to become a good white, you know, I'm going to look at my life and make these tiny little changes to my life so that my own personal workplace has me perpetrating on an interpersonal level less, rather than kind of how do we dismantle capitalism? How do we dismantle these systems of inheritance that derive from chattel slavery? How do we really do the big picture dismantling work? And that that's a much harder kind of moving the needle um, than the individual level, but can the individual level have a related impact or an impact on any kind of similar scale? And so I guess I, I wanted to kind of bring that part into this conversation because I think that it's valuable. I don't know what the next step is after we take that into account though. And, and that's where it gets at my, my own just personal pragmatism. I think sometimes part of the trap is that we get too meta. We try to find the answer for all situations as opposed to getting granular and and looking at specific concrete opportunities to make change. So for me, I feel like I I made a turn that really helped me when I decided I'm going to do anti-racism work in unitarian universalist circles in particular. And I'm going to help congregations be less racist. And the reason I chose Unitarian Universalism is because here's a group of primarily white people who really want to get it right, really want to figure it out, and haven't, <laughs> um, but at least want to. Unitarian Universalists are overeducated and overrepresented in upper middle class and upper class. And I want to have access to people in power because I figure if we, f if we can learn how to do it in our congregations, then those experiments teach us how to do it in our schools, in our places of employment, in all of the in city council, and all of these other places where whiteness operates unconsciously. So I think that the individual work is absolutely necessary. It is insufficient. And I think because one of the characteristics of white supremacy culture is individualism, People get stuck on demonstrating their goodness and demonstrating their wokeness and then trying to convert others as opposed to having a learning experience and then switching over to look at policies, procedures, institutional practices in the different places where you operate and then thinking, okay, how can I change this? Like, what are the hiring practices? What are the evaluation practices? How do we celebrate together? Who is included in our celebrations or in our practice? Like how are we embodied in the way that we do things or is it all in our heads? There's all of these different ways that we can challenge whiteness in the way that it operates in our systems, but not everyone has been encouraged to think systemically. We have been encouraged to think individually and to focus on our own redemption, which is also informed by our religions, right? Like if we are focused on our own relationship to the divine, as opposed to our communal relationship, we focus on different things. So I don't have any answers, but I have commitments of where I'm gonna pick to work and advance the project and know that I may very well not even see the needle move 
in my lifetime, but that shouldn't stop me from trying. And I think a lot of this work is about challenging and changing frameworks and, and the way that we look at things and the lenses we use to look at things. Like I read this book uh, last year called Cry Havoc by Michael Signer, and he was the, the mayor of Charlottesville from I think 2017 to 2019. So he was there, there during the riots. And um, it's like a gut-wrenching book and he explains what went wrong. It's, it's like a, a train wreck in slow motion. And it's truly a book about how the road to hell is paved with good intentions. And part of it is about a fight he had with activists, some activists of color and, 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 and some people who were, were purporting to be white allies talking about how like Robert's rules of order is white supremacy. And it was painful to read for many reasons, but I'm like, I know this argument have this argument, you know, like it can be, yes, you know, and that's hard to admit for a completely like policy nerd person like me, but it's true. And it took him a while to get that because at first he was like, what are you talking about? Like he, and then after a while, I think he got it. And just watching, like reading that and seeing the journey is, I don't think he meant to even convey this in his writing, but seeing someone slowly come to these realizations, like I feel like the book is about like whiteness and how he like experiences it and stuff like that. And it's complicated by the fact that he's Jewish and he was targeted in, in an anti-Semitic way, like during, during the attacks and everything else. So, but I, I would definitely recommend that book, not necessarily in that it's, it's definitely not like a what to do. It's just like a, this is how it happened. And like, what we can see from that is is a lot. And just thinking about trying to see things from different angles. And hopefully we'll, we'll learn something for, for the next time. I do also want to point out the, the nerdery of this podcast group right now. Because the second you started talking about Robert's Rules of Order, I noticed we were all like emphatically nodding along. Like, yes, Parliamentary Assembly, let's talk about it. <laughs> what about consensus-based decision-making structures? <laughs> <laughs> you know, <laughs> so I just really want to point out that, like, just if that you're listening and you're nerdy, you're in the right place. <laughs> I mean, the Charlottesville City Council isn't the only place where someone's made the accusation that that Roberts Rules of Order is a tool of white supremacy. People have said that about Unitarian Universalism, too. So, you mm. know, it's an argument I was familiar with. So and it's 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 one that needs to be needs to be had. That's right. But yeah, I really do love having these conversations and I think it's really interesting. I'm not sure if this will come through on the, the published podcast, but in our recording, we are all having these kind of long pauses in between our conversation. And I think that's such a good sign of the, the quality of conversation. Like none of these are answers. There's just a lot of reflection. And I think that these are the kinds of conversations for me that I find to be like, okay, I'm learning a new way of thinking. I'm not learning like an answer, you know? So much more important to, to challenge your framework than to find the right checklist. That also is white supremacy culture. Show me how to do it exactly right and I will check it all off to demonstrate that I'm one of the good ones. No, that's not it. That's not that's not the work. The the work of liberating ourselves is of giving ourselves permission to be imperfect and vulnerable and authentic and show up in real ways in relationship and come back to relationship after we've messed it up. That I think is much more valuable. I wanted to ask about something on a slightly different way they were going about like Judaism or like politics or whatever, which is uh, kind of like popular culture. And I've seen a lot of discussions about 
having um, more diversity of different pe people from different racial and ethnic backgrounds in television and in movies and stuff like that is, you know, generally a good thing and representation matters. You know, we've talked before about like the, the film critic Lindsay Ellis talking about, is it bad representation or no representation? And like how that's a terrible false choice that a lot of, a lot of groups find them in. And, you know, a lot of this discussion comes up now when it's right before all the major award shows, like, you know, were there enough people of color nominated? Were there enough people of color in good roles? And, you know, I was wondering if you had something to say about that. And also like, we don't need more representations of white people, but are there like anti-racist white people in the media ever? And that's like an interesting question. And I wonder if that would be good or be bad because then it's like, oh, well, you just have to be like that person. That's not, that's not an answer, but. Yeah, I'll respond to your second question first. I think that most of our com most of our movies, most of our TV shows, most of the cultural stories that we see about anti-racism and is about a white saviorism. So you're going to watch a movie about Jackie Robinson, but it's not actually only about Jackie Robinson. It's about the coach who hired him and how he struggled and how he woke up to the realization of racism. Or you're going to watch a movie about a jazz musician, but no, actually, you're also going to watch, you're going to hear the story about the white person driving them and taking them around and all these things. So I think we need to expand our stories and decenter whiteness and have people of color be the protagonists, not just the villains, and have a more complex experience that in some ways isn't related to white people. That's one of the things that, that I am hungry for and that I am still looking for in representation. The other thing that I would say is representation is important, tokenization is not helpful. So it needs to go beyond just having a certain number of people or um, certain identities represented to just having more complex stories and narratives that share the lived experience of people outside of a white middle class life. And the other thing that I would say is some of our cultural stories right now are still reflecting the work that the Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. did to try to bring us to a place of moving away from segregation and moving to a place of equality. But the equality that Dr. King was speaking about was one in which we erased differences, we minimized differences. So we are all the same, we are all um, equally important and valuable. And that move from segregation to minimization was very important in order to have some of the laws and some of the things that shifted over the past 50 years. But now we need to move beyond minimization to talking about how we are different and we can celebrate it, not be different and be less than. So like I'm thinking of the most recent Pixar movie, Soul, where the majority of the time, the narrative that's being portrayed is we're all blue souls. We're not white, we're not black, we're not this, we're not that. We're all the same if we don't have skin. And that is not sophisticated in terms of who, wh where are our cultures and where are, how do our ancestors inform who we are? How do we make decisions about what is good and right? How do we advance liberation and transformation? Like that's missing in stories where we're all the same and why can't we just get along? That's what I'm hungry for. I'm hungry for more stories about how do you have courage? 
How do you free yourself from the things that you have done in order to assimilate, in order to survive? Those are some thoughts that come up for me. Yeah, that's, that's good to think about. I was just going to say, how come if we're going to have white savior movies, why aren't they like a John Brown movie or William Lloyd Garrison movie or like, you know, a, a white person who actually risked something right. for racial equality? We don't have those movies. That's right. I think that would make better cinema, to be honest. Um, mm -hmm. What are you thinking, Karen? There's a bunch of thoughts in my head at the same time, and I'm not sure that I can communicate them well enough for recording them. <laughs> That's fair. I'm, I'm reflecting kind of on my, my own experience with this, and I think that's kind of specifically a white experience, and I kind of feel like maybe that's not appropriate in response to this. <laughs> so I'm kind of like, mm, I don't know that, that my reflections here are actually building in this conversation. I appreciate you recognizing that, decentering yourself. I think that's, that's a good practice. Is my lived experience or if, is what I know right now pertinent? Yeah, because I'm pretty sure everything I was going to say were like, here are the times that I've stood up. <laughs> and, you know, <laughs> or that's where I was reflecting and I was like, mm, not, yeah. now is not the time for that. <laughs> <laughs> so just to kind of bring it back to, to reflecting on how I, I want to find a word that's not value-laden, but immature is the only one that I can come up with for now. How immature these, like, we're all the same arguments are and, and how stuck on that um, a lot of American political discussion on a national level, how our national conversation around racism, when we look to a more centrist kind of representative conversation have stuck on that kind of infantile thing of, well, we're all the same, we all bleed red or whatever, you know, mm -hmm. uh, where the soul example, we're all blue souls. Well, I've not seen soul. <laughs> if, you, if you look at the constitution and the way that the, the core narrative that this country set up for itself, it is one of equality even when the people benefiting from that were the white, straight, land-owning men, right? Like, so they created a myth of equality and never have we had a national conversation about inequality and power. I would like to do some more studying of what, hap what happened in South Africa. I think there might be some learning there because when they created their new constitution, I think they were looking at things in a different way and contextualizing colonization and how that had happened and how to respond to it. But we have never contextualized colonization. We have never owned up to the two original sins of this country the genocide of the native people and the enslavement of the black people. And then we can also add stealing half of Mexico's territory. That's a whole other conversation, right? Like that, that, that happened 200 years later. So if we can't grapple with how things truly began, how can we possibly move the conversation beyond what we're all the same, but we all bleed red, but we all deserve. I mean, and, and the thing is, you can't argue against equality. Of course, we're all equally good. Of course, everyone is valuable. That's not something you want to argue against. It's that you want to complexify the conversation and the narrative of equality alongside the narrative of freedom of expression makes it really hard for anyone to be able to 
feel okay being challenged and to 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 not feel like their rights are being impinged on when it's actually your privilege that is being impinged on honey it's just that you're like you don't like it because that you're losing some of your privilege or that you're not having the same level of access that you and your people used to have anyway so we we have a lot of, as you were saying, Elizabeth, the work of Sankofa, looking back to look forward and really understanding our historical roots and understanding how did these categories of whiteness and blackness and uh, all of these different racial things, how did our relationship to capitalism and to inequality, how did our patriarchal system and our heterosexist system all set things up in place to make sure that a small group of people have access and power. And until we can tell that story without white male fragility, without this like reaction of like, no, 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 but let me explain, but I'm a good person. Let me be defensive, like, blah, blah, blah. Until we get past that, we're gonna be doing the same work. Here we are doing that work. I think that that is the work of our time to have these conversations and to look for healing but also to center the people who have been marginalized. Thank you so much for taking the time to talk to us today. Thank that you was a great summation. Me. I was gonna say, do you have anything to add? But that was wonderful. No, you're welcome. I, I had no idea what you wanted, but I mean, the time flew, I'm fine. Okay, is, is there anywhere online that you'd like people to check out your work or anything you wanna draw attention to on the internet? Well, I'm going to be in a worship service that comes out next weekend, next Sunday. When does this podcast come out? Probably in a two or three weeks, so probably not that so quick. I can send you the link to that because it will already be out if people want to Sure. Want to learn more. It's called The 30 Days of Love. Sure, I'll definitely, yeah, I'll put a link to that when we, when we post a link to the podcast. You can find me on Twitter at Miss Cherry Pie. And you can find me at uh, Karen. Thank you so much. Thank you. You've been listening to the Feminist Coffee Hour podcast, tackling political rumors from the feminist outer boroughs of New York City. If you like our podcast, please support us at our Patreon, which you can find at www.patreon.com slash feminist coffee hour, or, you know, do a Google for Patreon and feminist coffee hour. Our patrons get early releases of episodes, plus other cool perks at higher levels. If you can't support us financially, you can always give us a five-star rating on iTunes and write us a review as it helps the algorithm know we're there and that people like us, like you. Our intro and outro music is Making It Hard by Bridget Ellsworth, and you can find her music on SoundCloud.